Welcome to the Listening Party podcast for October 2nd, 2020. My name is Rebecca Haas, and I'm the Director of Community Engagement for Pacific Opera. This month's episode of the Listening Party podcast will feature the voices of artists who've worked here over the last season. Now, normally, we would be in the thick of rehearsals right now for our season opener. In fact, this time last year, we were kicking off the celebrations for our 40th anniversary season with Puccini's masterwork, Il Tritico. Here at Pacific Opera, we often hear from the people who work with us that being with Pacific Opera is like being with family. The creative teams feel this way, the performers, but you know what? The local team here feels the same way. All of us in Victoria at Pacific Opera, we're missing our creative family right now. We are continuing to work on ways to share digitally with you highlights of past productions, but in the meantime, I did what we all do these days when we're lonely. I reached out on Zoom, and I met up with a few of the wonderful, talented, creative folks who made last season so special. My first conversation is about Il Tritico, but I'm not going to start with the singers. This time, I decided I would showcase a voice you might not be familiar with, although you will be familiar with her work. So my name is Pam Johnson, and I'm the set and costume and prop designer for Il Tabarro. My job is to take the words and the essence of the libretto and the, the music and put it into a physical form. So give people the actual location that it happens in, the actual mood that it happens in, um, and, uh, and support the singers uh, with whatever they need to help their character, help uh, move the story along. Um, so I'm a, I'm a rah-rah support team. I like it. You're the cheerleader. That's right. <laughs> On all of all the physical pieces. Uh, I know for myself have, and from my singing career, the costumes are and the props are all those things are incredibly important to singers in terms of manifesting character. I know actors, movie actors often talk about it. You don't always know who your character is until you have that side pocket, right? It's just how mm -hmm. garments feel, how things hang on you, what's in your hands. Uh, they fill in so much. It's, I think it's more collaborative than uh, maybe even people know. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I start working on a project uh, sometimes a year in advance. So I've lived with these characters. Um, I've explored these characters sometimes a lot more than the singers have before they get a chance to. Uh, and I don't like to totally impose. Here you are, this is it. I like to have a bit of a dialogue with the, with the, um, the singers. But at the same time, uh, the director and I have a, have a clear vision of what we want for the show and how we want it to be. So I'm open to suggestions for making the, act, the actor more comfortable and, and uh, be able to do their job well, you know, the diaphragm supported or not, you know, getting scrunched into some tight, tight thing, uh, or that they can move, because that's also a huge thing these days is that, you know, no longer are opera singers just standing and singing. They're expected to, you know, move around the stage and climb stairs and jump off buildings and <laughs> you never know, right? 
singers are more active these days, and stage business can include a singer lying on the ground, hanging upside down, crawling around on all fours, all while singing beautifully. My own personal advice to singers when they go to a fitting is leave your vanity at the door. When you walk into that fitting, that's the time to breathe big, inhale, let the designer know how big your rib cage is, or you're going to be stuck in a lace-up gown in a period costume, and you're going to run on that stage and never be able to take a breath for that first note. There's nothing worse than that. So let me tell you a little bit about Pam Johnson, in case you're not familiar with her. Uh, Pam has been a long-time designer for Pacific Opera, going all the way back to 1990 with productions like Pirates of Penzance, uh, Madama Butterfly, Don Giovanni, uh, Vanessa that I was lucky enough to sing in, Ronaldo, and of course, most recently, Il Tritico. She also has designed for Bard on the Beach, the Shaw Festival, and has taught for many years in Vancouver at Studio 58. Il Tritico isn't just any opera. It's three operas in one night. Everyone loves Puccini, but this particular three-in-one opera isn't presented very often. First of all, it's expensive. You either have to hire three different casts, or you have to manage to find a cast that you can double up so they sing in more than one opera on the night. This is not easy. The other issue is the cost. Think about three sets of costumes and three sets. They're very different locations, so it's a very difficult thing to double up on any of these. Il Tabaro takes place on a wharf with a barge. Swarangelica in a convent with its back garden. And Gianni Schicchi, an old man's bedroom where greedy relatives assemble to hear his last will and testament. It's a lot. It was a lot for Pam, especially considering she was a last-minute replacement for another designer who took ill. Glynis had had a very clear vision of what she wanted and how she wanted to do the show. You know, I always feel my job is to support the director and the vision and the opera itself. So it's the biggest thing I've ever done myself as well, especially doing all of the elements. Like quite often, you know, you end up doing um, just set, if it's a really big show, set and props, and then someone else is doing costumes. But this was uh, a major undertaking. And uh, I have to say that the the staff and and the talent that POV has, as far as carpenters and props builders and costume people and uh, I, no designer could do it without this amazing team that, that Victoria has and, and you're so lucky. And I always feel so privileged and so excited to be working with this gang. Um, so it's, it's always, it's a bit of a, ho- it, not a holiday, but it's always joyful. It's always um, good. I get to work with these people again. It's really fun. Was there a moment in the creation of it where you sort of thought, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's romantic and it's intriguing and it's exciting when you get described that it's um, three separate operas, but they're, you know, and they take place in one evening and, uh, you know, you know, the Met's done it, you know, people have done it and it's doable uh but then you go okay how are we going to do it i uh, i don't like um 
tons of intermissions. I don't like tons of, you know, when the curtain closes and you're sitting in the dark waiting and you're hearing bashing and crashing behind the curtain and you're going, what the heck's going on? And then the reveal and nothing really has changed. But, you know, we wanted it to flow quite quickly so that you don't lose momentum. With that in mind, you you start attacking the play and looking at what what the universal themes are or what the look, things that you can share from one location to the next, that kind of thing. And Glynis had really thought it through as far as, you know, yes, we have to be on a barge. We have to have that uh, grungy, depressed, you know, tight feel, tra entrapment. Um, uh, so that she wants to get out, she has to get out, that kind of thing. Then we go into still the entrapment of and, and containment of Swar Angelica, where we made it a hospital, basically. So, so we, the, how we lace things through was a lot of the, the people would walk by the barge that were injured or had the World War I um, uniforms on so that you're setting it during 1918. And uh, you see it in injured people going into a, a doorway and knowing that when we do reveal, um, it's, it is a, a working hospital inside there. That was sort of the journey that we um, looked at. And then I do, as a designer, I do things that people don't really notice, but in their, in their psyche, I think they notice, for example, a portal on the ship, on the barge, I mimic portals in Swar Angelico on the, on the walls. So that that's a theme of just architecture that sort of carries through and links the two together, whether it, do, you know, whether you acknowledge it or not as an audience member, it, it does work just psychologically, you know, it, there's something about it. So I always do kind of little things like that to hope tie it all together as well. So the porthole on the barge plays a big part because we see the interior of the space and we see each of the characters doing their own thing while something else is going on uh, on the barge. And then, uh, and again, just architecturally, the portals are, are mimicked uh, on, the, on the walls of the, of the convent. In, um, and I'll ask about all three, even though we're only showing two of them in the movie form, but is there a favorite moment that you had envisioned that really, it did come alive and work even better than you might've expected on stage? I mean, what are you, maybe when you go back, well, what's your favorite thing? Um, in Swar Angelica, the, it's written beautifully, but they throw you a curveball in the fact that they go outside of the convent. So you see the, the veterans, you see the injured in, in the um, hospital, but then you go outside. That was, that's a tricky one because uh, do I, you know, use a whole different wall? Do we, we're in a courtyard, how do we indicate it? So I already have indicated the outside wall when we were in, in... Um, Il Tabaro. Il Tabaro, thank you. Right, the when we're on the boat in the barge because we have the exterior, yes. Yes, it's, uh, yeah, my Italian's not great either. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so we, as a, piece and money spent on this one wall that flies in and out only once we thought okay could we reuse that wall and disguise it somehow so that was great what we came up with was uh vines that covered and so that was a whole separate piece that flew in um to cover the wall 
And then I went, oh shoot, I can't cover it completely because there's that magical moment where the angel has to come through. So um, anyway, we have to cut the vines out so that the windows still can open and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of combination, that kind of figuring things out uh, and then it looking quite beautiful. It was, I, you know, the props, department did such a fantastic job in the costume department with the angel when she came through and dropped her gown and just hung in space was I think purely magic and uh, so those were kind of my favorite. I don't think anyone who has seen that show will ever forget the moment of the angel and I feel like I'm a fairly you know I'm a fairly <laughs> a long-term well-experienced opera goer and I totally was surprised by that. Mm. And I told, I welled up and I thought, oh, you got me. <laughs> it was oh, great. Oh, it's overwhelmingly beautiful. The combination of that music and the visual of that. And it was like magic. No one knows how it's done. I'm not going to ask you. It was, I don't want to destroy the magic of it. It's a, it was a beautiful moment on stage. Just, it worked so well. Unfortunately, I didn't get to sit back on opening night. I had to leave before opening night. So I didn't get to see the production in front of an audience. I got to see first dress and and I knew everything was in pretty good shape. We had to tweak a few little uh, costume bits, but it was in good shape so I could leave it. And I had hired a lovely assistant um, to help me to op to look after it while I after I left. But, you know, there's that that moment as a designer to be able to sit in the house on opening night and finally just let it all go and let it go. I can just sit and enjoy the show and not take notes and not go, oh shoot, I've got to fix that. And oh darn, I've got to do this. Um, so it was fun. I really missed that. And so I, I, I kept hearing how well it was received, which was so great. Uh, but I wish I'd seen it because I know that moment, I would have loved to have been in the audience to hear what happened when that angel came through. Cause I do think it's quite magical. Perhaps you could just offer to me in tomorrow and the Swarangelica both that will be screening some things that you would ask people to take a little extra long look at as a designer that you think are worth people noticing? Oh, that's always tough. Um, uh, gosh, I'm going to have to think about this for a second. Um, I think, you know, just to, to uh, for me, the, the texture, it, now, if that if you can understand that, like the te the texture of the walls, the texture of the boat, the um, um, grubbiness that that it was, and then I think part of what is so fantastic is when that wall lifts up, the cleanliness, the white, the purity, the innocence that you feel initially with all those nuns standing there in their pristine, soft grays and white. And, and so that, that contrast, and I think that's got something to do with the design, absolutely, but it's also Pacini, you know, it's also him giving you two different worlds. And, uh, and we could have made the inside of that hospital grungy and, and, and decaying, or if we wanted to represent, but there's something about those nuns and the, the beauty and the simplicity of it. And then what ha I think what, because of that, then the pain and the sorrow becomes so more, 
important and so obvious. And so, so I think those are the kind of things that I think as an audience, you don't sort of think about per se, you just sort of go, Oh yeah, a grungy barge in a crappy wall. And then you go, Oh, well that looks pretty, but you don't understand how that's working on your, your psyche as well. So that's something to different to look for. You know, I think if I ever need therapy, I'm coming to you. <laughs> I, I just, I love the way you see the world. It's, it's really, um, it's so true that what you create for us is uh, you take visual things and it creates feeling in us and we don't always make the connection, but it's so intrinsic to how we hear the music. I mean, it's, it's a whole unified process. It's so collaborative what you do. It is. And that's, uh, that's what I think is my job is to, as I said before, to support the piece. And, uh, and you know that it's working when everything comes together like that. And you just have that experience of, and you don't know why it's, it's not just the singer. It's not just the music. It's everything coming to the lighting, the, the, you know, everything coming together that you really makes you, um, as an audience, have a, have a complete experience. In this time of COVID, Pam told me she's taking the time to paint her bathroom and that after a career that is often filled with travel, she's actually loving the time to reconnect with her husband. It turns out they still like each other. In fact, in that interview, you could hear her phone dinging and that was her husband letting her know that he'd got his bike with a flat tire to the shop safely. Pam and I also talked about the genius of Puccini, and the range of styles in Il Tritico. A singer who is a tragic lover in the first show, Tabaro, then becomes a crazy, funny, greedy relative by the third opera, Gianni Schicchi. Which is a good segue for me to talk about my second guest on the podcast today. He's a composer. Hello, I am Maxime Goulet, and I am the composer of The Flight of the Hummingbird. I asked Maxime to explain how an opera comes to be. So the pipeline of production of an opera, the classical way would be that the librettist would write the libretto and hand it off to the composer. The composer would take that libretto and compose music to it and then hand it off to the musician who would perform it. And then we add some, uh, some, some staging, some costume until the performance. So it's more like a linear pipeline. But the way we've done it, it was more kind of an organic way of working together. Um, so the first thing is that I was uh, contacted to participate in this project as a composer. And right away, I went online and tried to find out everything I could about Michael Nicole Yagulinas, who is one of the co-librettists, along with Barry Gilson. And I bought some of his... Uh, Haida Manga, his books, try to know his style and everything. I've listened to some uh, interviews he's done and try to, uh, and I did the same thing with uh, Barry and Glynis Leishon, the, uh, the dramaturge and also a stage director. And so that I get a sense of who these people are. I was surprised to hear how Maxime goes beyond the text and the music. And he really immerses himself in the creative energy of the team he's going to work with. After he agreed to take on this project, the creative team met and worked on the first draft of the libretto. The libretto is built on the book The Flight of the Hummingbird by Michael Nicolaiagolanis, which is about maybe seven, eight, nine pages long. How did that become a 45-minute opera? Maxime told me it involved rich conversations, character development, and the whole team embracing the operatic scale of the scenes. It was interesting. They already had a sense of uh, something operatic, so some 
some uh, sometimes a character would have a long monologue that I could see this being an area, uh, this and that. So there was kind of a development of emotion. So there was already a lot of things that I could see was very operatic in their first draft. Um, things that we wanted to uh, modify, Glennis and I, was to add some clarity because when you sing, uh, already singing is sometimes it's hard to understand what is the person saying. So if it's the text is not clear, it's and you add the fact that it's sung and we knew that it would tour in school so there wouldn't be subtitles to follow to understand what was going on. So we had to make sure that everything is very clear and sometimes repeat some phrases to make sure that you know the message uh, is, is, is well understood by everyone. When they all met again for the second workshop on the libretto, it culminated in a public reading and Maxime was able to share some musical ideas that had already come to him from the discussions they'd been having. It was a big day for the librettists, Michael Nicolaiagolanis and Barry Gilson. It was their chance to hear what music does with text, how themes musically speak, and just the basics of how language is sung. As Maxime explained it to me, it was extraordinarily collaborative. So I wanted really early on to kind of um, create a trust relation between us so that they understand why I'm editing a lot their text. It, it doesn't change the meaning, but sometimes it's just adding a little word or removing one or repeating something. Glynis was there also asking them to act a little bit. So that gave me a better idea. Like, is the, is the tension working well? Is the sus suspense going well? Is the joke funny? Do we need more? Is it clear enough? You know, these kind of things. And, uh, that was really an uh, intense week for me because after each day of the workshop, I would go back to the hotel, do the modification during the evening and the night, send the, uh, the, the new updates so that the next morning we can print enough. We had a printer in the uh, rehearsal hall and we print the new parts and we start back the new day with the new version, work on that and like that every day. Workshop processes like this are intense, but they're always very productive weeks for a new piece and extremely important. It was out of this workshop that the team realized that they were missing an aria, one that really addressed the importance of doing what you can. Eventually that aria was sung by the hummingbird. It's amazing to hear about all these steps and pieces of the process that created the opera. I had to ask Maxime, when he looks back at this process, which took two and a half years of his life, what stands out to him? To sum it up, what was really interesting about the process of this, uh, creating this opera, is that we were all uh, together, working together for a common goal. And what was really interesting is that in that story of the flight of the hummingbird, you have these different characters that have all different backgrounds. So Dugdugdia is from that forest. She flew away for many years and then she come back. And there's the uh, bunny who is from outside of the forest and who was a refugee who seeks shelter in the forest. And then there's Al that arrives in the middle of the opera, fleeing the, the fire. And so you have all these characters with different personality, with different background that all come together for one common goal is trying to save the forest from the fire. And I felt the way we were working as a creative team was very similar to that. I mean, uh, Michael, Barry, uh, me and Glynis are all from different backgrounds, from different generation. And we came together. So it was really interesting to, uh, to see this kind of uh, uh, friendship grow and kind of bring this project together and align our vision together. So it was, there was that similarity between the way we worked and the story that was being told. Maxime's been keeping busy during COVID-19 with a personal project. 
I asked him to tell me about this delightful project he's been working on that uses all his musical operatic skills, storytelling, feeling, the voice, and visuals. Yeah, so uh, the project is called Micrometeo, and it was uh, it started actually really long time ago, almost 20 years ago. Um, while I was listening to weather reports on the radio, I noticed that the all these expressions had a lot of uh, very poetic uh, side to it. And I thought, oh, the, you know, there's a, there's a really interesting artistic potential there. So I started writing these kind of short poem, almost like haiku. It's like sometimes two, two phrase or maximum of like 10 words put together that, um, that uses these expression that we use in weather reports, but in a more poetic way, really like haiku. And um, so more descriptive, uh, sometimes it's, it, often it's a play with word. So uh, it's in French, but if I translate one, it could be like, uh, in French, it would be, depuis que les nuages l'ont quitté, le ciel dégagé les bleus. So ever since the cloud lift him, the, the cleared sky has the blues. So it works in the first level because yes, no, if there's no more clouds, the sky is blue, but it works on the other side because the, the sky is sad because the cloud left him, so he has the blues, you know. Like the rest of us, Maxime began to see, during the pandemic, postings of his friends making music, things they were sharing online on Facebook or Instagram, singing a song in their kitchen or living room or backyard. And he began to think again about these poems. He told me he has written over a hundred of them, and it began to seem to him that Facebook might be the perfect platform for these little mini poems. They're really too short to be programmed, he said. They would never really make a concert in a concert hall. But for the short attention span we have and online, these might be ideal. And so he set about setting each one of them to music. He engaged a singer and a pianist who also collaborated, socially distanced in their own apartments. Pianists would lay down their track first, then give it to the singer, who would then sing over top of the piano part, and the Maxime would mix these together to his satisfaction. But there was one more element he wanted to include, and then this project became a family affair. I was talking to my sister about this project, my older sister, Emilie Goulet. Uh, she's a visual artist at... Uh, She's an animator at Pixar in San Francisco. And uh, I was telling her about that. And she knew, of course, these poems from when I wrote them 20 years ago. And she was really excited about the idea that I was setting them into music. And she said, like, on her weekends, if she wants, she could uh, do some visuals. The listener who watches the video, it's really interesting because it makes something that is immersive. And it's something, because when you see these videos of the people playing that piece in their kitchen, it's fun for the moment of the pandemic, but I don't think in five years we will want to go back to those videos and listen to it, you know. Uh, but for the these little videos of uh, Micro Meteo, I think it will last um, later after the pandemic because it's not a compromise from the concert experience. When you see someone playing the kitchen, you say, that's good, but it would have been much better if I would have been in concert hall listening to that. But when you see, see the video of Micro Meteo, you don't have that. You say it's good, but it's something different. It's kind of a, sometimes I was calling it a mini Fantasia. You know, the movie of Walt Disney Fantasia where they take a classical piece and they do a video animation towards it. And a lot of people were also happy to have these little videos because uh, at the time it was at the peak of the confinement. 
people were almost saying like, only go out of your house when it's necessary, you know? So everybody was kind of stuck inside. So that was kind of a way of bringing a little bit of inside, of outside, inside, you know, bring a little bit of sunshine, clouds of uh, uh, rainbow inside in front of your screen. So that, uh, so it brought some joy and a lot of them are very humorous and funny. You can check these out through a link on our website. Maxime has created 24 so far, and they're creating quite a splash. He was even interviewed by the Weather Network. I love that he kept himself creatively challenged, and he employed some of his friends and family. He also told me that as time lost meaning during the days of the lockdown in the spring, composing one of these a day really helped him feel productive and fulfilled. My final interview is with three singers. These are the three lead singers from Il Tabaro. We had arranged to meet on Zoom, and when I arrived in the Zoom room, two of the three were there, but we were still missing one. I had a soprano, I had a baritone, but the tenor? No tenor. He didn't come, and he didn't come. And luckily enough, Todd, the baritone, had his home number, and before we knew it... Uh-huh. There he is. There he is. Oh, good. He, he didn't shave either. Good. <laughs> <laughs> podcast. No one needs to shave. Adam, you have a face for radio. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's good to have friends. Oh, man. Are we good? Look at at Adam. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I was just doing trick shots with my son and we lost track of time. (laughs) I asked each singer to introduce themselves and tell us where they are in the world right now. And I thought it might be nice if they reminded us about the name of the character they sang in Il Tabaro. That proved a bit of a challenge for some. Hi, my name is Todd Thomas. Uh, I'm a baritone uh, living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I sang the role of Michele in Il Tabaro. Hi, my name is Aviva Fortunata. I am a soprano, and I sang the role of... What's her name? I know, I was just blanking on it, too. <laughs> Georgetta. Yeah, Georgetta. Yeah. is... Elizir. Okay, Georgetta. Georgetta. Okay, I'll go again. That's why I brought my score, people. <laughs> well, I should have my score. I don't have my score anywhere. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's I'll, try again. I'll try it again. Okay, take two. Hi, my name is Aviva Fortunata. I'm a soprano and I sang the role of Georgetta. Well, I live in Toronto normally, but right now I'm very happily at home with my parents in Calgary. The city just was getting a little too crazy with the COVID stuff. So I decided to take the opportunity to go home to Calgary. My parents live very close to the mountains. We've been out hiking and walking and it's just been amazing. You almost wouldn't know that the pandemic was happening when you're out in the mountains and just, it's been amazing. The weather's been so beautiful. It's just been kind of a perfect summer for that kind of stuff. Hi, my name is Adam Luther. I'm a tenor. I live in Stratford, Ontario. And the part I played in Il Tabarro was Luigi. Il Tritico, as Pam and I talked about earlier, is made up of three one-act operas. Il Tabarro, Suar Angelica, and Gianni Schicchi. The latter two are performed regularly in universities or as part of other operatic evenings. But it is Il Tabarro that is rarely seen. I asked the singers if they knew these shows before the production, and what did they think of it musically? Here's Adam Luther, who jumped in first. Personally, I found it uh, incredible because here is a Puccini opera. Uh, the, the music's incredible. Uh, tenor parts, great, of course. Soprano, the baritone. Such beautiful music, and I did not know it at all. 
So it was a real pleasure to discover this piece really for the first time and, and really discover Puccini in the, at the very end of his career and how he was writing. And it, it, was, uh, it was just awe-inspiring really to, to find this music. It was great. I loved it. Yeah, like, like, like Adam said, this is the very first time that I uh, looked into that part. It's, it's, it's really rich, the whole, the whole opera. I think for all, all three soloists, it's a lot of great, great material. Definitely. It's a really interesting piece, too, because it's so atmospheric and there's no, there aren't any really easy Puccini-esque melodies. It's, you really have to work for it and you really get the sense of this kind of like slum Paris at the time. And it's just something that I knew from a music history standpoint. Everyone knew that these three operas existed, but yeah, Tobaro is definitely the one that you do not see performed that much. And I'd never seen it or heard any of the music before. So it was, it was really exciting. And it's, yeah, it's a beautiful piece. It's like the perfect length and it's so dramatic and so tragic and just a lot of fun. I say, I think that's a very opera singer thing to say. It's so dramatic and so tragic and so much fun. <laughs> it's way more fun. Yeah. It's so much fun when you die or you get to kill someone. Like, that's the best. Yeah. And yeah, it's always fun to die on stage, too. I, I and you get the most that. applause when you die on stage. I yeah. know. They're so glad. They're so glad my, I'm gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> opera is always a large scale story. But even by operatic standards, Il Tabaro is pushing the edge. The opera ends with a jealous husband who murders his wife's lover hiding his body underneath his coat, and in the final moments of the opera, while embracing his wife, he shoves her into the cold, dead body of her lover's corpse. It's dramatic. I wondered if this very overdramatic story becomes challenging for an audience. Can they suspend their disbelief? And is there a risk of people laughing at the wrong time? I think for me, the... One of the most dangerous parts of of possibly getting a laugh is after I've killed Adam, and I try to hide him under my cloak. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, mean, but, I but think I, I did maybe get a laugh. I was gonna say I don't did it. Yeah. Well, we laughed so much about that scene in general. I think we did all the laughing. I think we, we got all the laughing. I think, but th thankfully we had you know Glennis, who's such one of my very favorite directors in the yeah. world. And she was so sensitive to it. And she's so sensitive right. that we right. cannot have a single person laugh at this moment. We right. cannot have that. And, um, and, and yet, Timothy said, there's no other way. Because I think we had a discussion about other ways that he could die or, right? Didn't we have a discussion about, and he said, no, it's, it, it has to be, he has to be under the tabaro. That is the, yeah. what Otherwise, it was. What's Who's the, the title point? of the piece? What's the title yeah, yeah. of the piece? <laughs> so so yeah. uh, then it's also, you know, what, what's really about, difficult about getting live, uh, getting laughs, it, it's not even so much the action, but it's always the timing sometimes of the titles or what, how the title translates right. specifically. Then that, that gets a laugh. Right. You, you realize it like a second later. When you read. <laughs> right. I mean, so, so no, Aviva may be right. Maybe we did get a little bit of a chuckle, but I mean, I think we are, I think the, the three of us are, and the chorus included, all the, all the roles, you know, we we're all invested in, in the story. We took it extremely seriously. So we weren't. Yeah. I think it just requires a, a heightened sense of suspension of belief because yeah. 
you're you're on a boat but really it was what like 15 feet long it was the tiniest little boat i was in this little the little room in the boat which was apparently inside the boat but i had to be like scrunched down so you could see in it uh and then i come back out and i say something like hey i thought i heard something and right. they've been shouting at each other for five minutes and i'm literally six feet away from them yeah and trying not to see yeah <laughs> trying not to see uh adam's body which the legs were showing on this boat right. with all the lights yeah. on it's just there's a heightened <laughs> sense of uh dramatic yeah. tension yeah i tried to i tried to squ squish my body as best as i could but you know, there wasn't a lot of real estate underneath the rubs. Or, it depends uh, the how the cloak falls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Adam. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. So there's some insight for you about the technical challenges in the dramatic moments of Il Tabaro, which in retrospect created much laughter in the rehearsal hall, but not in the theater. But when it came to talking about Puccini's music, the tone shifts. The singers felt deeply about their favorite moments in the show. For, for me, the, 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 the most rewarding part of the show was singing with Aviva, specifically in, in the duet, when I'm, I'm trying to say, uh, you know, just come by and, 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 and sit next to me. I mean, I'm trying so hard to open up to her. And, and, and it, that, that melody in that duet was... Uh, that was very special each each night. Resta vicino a me was really tr that through the end yeah. of, our, of our duet. Yeah. Really, for me, that was my favorite part. Yeah, I love that duet. That duet is so much, so satisfying to sing. And you can really tell that like these two people have gone through the traumatic experience of losing a child and how they've reacted so differently. And they still want to connect and come back together. But for whatever reason, uh, for both of them, they just can't seem to get there at the same time at the same place and you know Michaela deals with it one way probably by being colder and more distant and Georgetta deals with it with a you know a distraction and it's yeah that moment is so so interesting and it was so much so satisfying to to to, to sing every performance for sure. I love the, the whole thing it's hard to pick moments but I like Todd's aria after that duet didn't you have a, that that yeah, really yeah. Lamenting. Yeah. yeah, I mean that the way the melody came out of that thing. Oh, I I love the first time because I didn't study it really before I just, you know, you just mostly look at your music and a bit of the others, but I didn't really listen to that part a lot. And when I heard it for the first time, I was so moved, profoundly moved. Yeah. I, I thought it was incredible. Yeah, that's um, a great, great writing though. Yeah, and I also the du the duet I do with uh, George Geta, um thing at the end of act one where that b flat comes out of nowhere i didn't anticipate <laughs> yeah, yeah. how that melody would resolve either and now da, 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 da. it was so exciting yeah so though yeah but really the whole the whole thing was amazing it's so exciting we wanted to hold it longer and longer each it's time. true yeah, <laughs> yeah. <I love> that. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah yeah it just was unexpected how that came out yeah yeah so we've heard about their favorite onstage moments, but what is it like for the cast offstage? They're in a city for four to six weeks usually. Adam was quick to jump in on this topic. Well, I, I don't know if you'll be su surprised by this, but we do hang out a lot uh, offstage together. And 
I just remember Aviva being a fantastic cook and a hostess. She would have it over all the time. We made pasta, homemade pasta. I did the best rolls out of anybody. <laughs> okay, your your rolls were okay. They were good. They yeah. were good. No, no, no. I had the best. I don't know if they were the best because I think Lara's were probably the best. Well, she, but she learned my te- she learned my technique, and then she Ooh, you know she you taught her. Yeah. I think Tritical had such a huge cast and it, on one night, I think I had almost everyone right. in my room, in my tiny hotel room, learning how yeah. to make pasta. And yeah. I'll, I'll send you some pictures because it was amazing. Everyone made some. Uh, we had a really good time and Adam was apparently the best. I didn't yeah. remember that, but that's what he says. So I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And it all tasted amazing. Yeah. And Todd and I, I remember talking... Todd and I going up for drinks at, up at the uh, the Sky Lounge there, and yeah, just just hanging out with the with the cast. I, I that's kind of the most memorable things for me, for sure. Yeah, for, for me, uh, the four operas I've done in Victoria have all been that same period, the opening show of the season. So, so I've yeah. always been fall time there from you know for me. So it's very so many times this past like three or four weeks, I've been thinking, boy, I haven't been in my home the fall for a long time i'm actually raking leaves you know and and shit like yeah. that. Right. stuff like that but um because every other time i've been you know at the at, in, in victoria during that period right um yeah no I, th- I think a lot of our time is spent or my has been spending that uh was it 360 is that the the bar up uh, this 18 is up on top this 18, this 18 or, or climbs right right <laughs> We, we leave a lot of our feet back at the hotel, actually. <laughs> or I should say myself, I leave a lot of feet there. As Todd mentions, normally there is a show in rehearsals right now, and opening day is almost upon us, but not this year. So what are these singers up to during the time of COVID? I just mowed my lawn, actually, so I feel I'm right in the mix of this conversation. But uh, I, for me, it was pre-kids going back to school and post-kids going back to school. Now that they're back in school, um, it's it's such a relief. Like they're kind of out of the house. Now I can practice. I find singing if I can get a if I can get at least ten or fifteen minutes into singing a day, my mood is better. I feel um, like I've accomplished something. <laughs> so if, if practicing for me is actually kind of good for my mental health, I I love it. But if I don't get the practice in, then look out. Uh, I want to get back and redo some of my like RCM piano exams. So I've become very focused on playing the piano and actually Kim Bartzak, who's the, I guess, I, what's her job title? The head coach. I think she's the, the principal coach. Principal coach. We've known each other for 10 or so years now. And so she's my piano teacher and we meet on zoom twice a week. And uh, yeah, she's a really hard piano teacher, but very fair. And I'm a very good student. I practice every day. And if I don't, my parents are like, hey, are you going to practice today? So it's just like being in high school. (laughs) Uh, But no, it's a lot of fun. And it's just uh, still being really connected to music, but in a non-singing way right now, which is what I'm enjoying. It's so funny you say that because I've been, over the last month, I've been learning piano as well because I my kids are so rowdy. I put them to sleep with playing piano music. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Really over the last month, I've really worked on my chops too, which that's, that's oh, funny. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's in C major though. It's like, Oh, <laughs> you, know, you got a groovy kind of love and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one moment in time, you know, <laughs> you can solve that. That's terrific. Yeah. 
Todd, what about for you? Oh, I have an interesting project coming up in, in the States. One of the first companies to, to come back to do anything in terms of you know, live performances, I'm doing Rigoletto in Tulsa uh, Opera, but it's going to be in a baseball stadium. And uh, the orchestra is going to be cut, no winds in the orchestra because of transmission. So it'll be a string quartet with piano. It's so odd because you know, <laughs> Rigoletto starts with what? Brass, bam, ba bam, ba bam. <laughs> so we don't start there. We start with the Duke's entrance, you know, jump, bump, bump, bumpy, bump, bump, you know that. So we start the regular with that without the curse. Um, so that'll be interesting. That's like October 9th. One performance in the baseball stadium in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Will it be baseball themed? As a matter of fact, I've been told it will be. <laughs> And, and so, so I'm thinking, and I found this only out f from the interview that we had with the uh, Tulsa newspaper like last week. So from him, I found out, not from the stage director, who is James Robinson, uh, evidently Rigoletto is the mascot of the team. <laughs> okay, oh mascot. <laughs> and and the, Duke, the Duke is the owner of the baseball team. But I listened oh. to this, the very first week uh, that we're there, we're having a photo session of just getting for, for, for baseball cards, which will have our picture on the baseball cards and we've also had to determine if we're right-handed or left-handed because they're going to order us all mitts because we need to have baseball mitts rigoletto at a baseball field well it does allow the audience to socially distance and i have to say i'm kind of envious that todd gets to be on a baseball card i had such fun talking with these three singers you can really hear the camaraderie that they developed over working on a show together such wonderful friendships are made on the road, and talking with them, I felt a little bit like an interloper on a private conversation between old friends. I'm grateful to all my guests on the podcast who shared stories about their projects with Pacific Opera, and I'm grateful for them letting us know how they're managing getting through the pandemic. I hope you find some comfort and connection joining us in the virtual world at pacificopera.ca. You can find interviews there, music, archival highlights, and more that will help you get through this difficult time when we're not able to gather together in the performance hall. Join me next month on the first Friday for the next installment of the Listening Party podcast. You're going to hear from two of the artists in our new civic engagement program, Charlotte Siegel and Simran Clare, and also Canadian soprano Miriam Khalil. All three identify as black or people of color, and they're going to be reflecting with me on why it's important to connect to diverse communities through art, and specifically through the art form of opera. I'm Rebecca Haas for the Listening Party Podcast, and until the next time, stay safe and be well.